This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Fenway Rundown podcast, Mass Live's Red Sox show. It's Tuesday, uh, beginning of a busy week for the Red Sox. They'll be introducing Craig Breslow officially as their chief baseball officer in a couple of days at Fenway Park. We'll have, as the kids say, team coverage from Fenway Park for that, with a bunch of us there to cover um, Breslow's intro presser and all that comes of it, not only on the site, but also on the podcast today. Not a lot of Red Sox news since we last talked, so it's time for a mailbag. We're going to do that differently now and in the future, and we'll get to that in a minute. But really, today is the end of one era at the Fenway Rundown, the beginning of another. You see and hear Sean McAdam and I, uh, Chris Cotillo, I didn't introduce myself yet, but that's who I am, uh, as the host of this show, uh, and we're kind of the the forward-facing faces so to speak of this show but we have had an invaluable behind the scenes third member of the crew for i not even sure how long it it predates you sean but joey aliberti our trusty producer is moving on no longer producing the show so we wanted to have joey in here one more time joey's been on before in a couple of episodes but as our uh podcast producer this is your farewell joey uh, why are you leaving us? You want to tell everybody why you are moving on from the esteemed Fenway rundown? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was against my will. No, I'm kidding. Right. Um, against was, our will, that's for sure. <laughs> I have, I'm actually not moving too far from the Mass Live family. I'm moving over to Lone Star Live and Gulf Live, two advanced local startups. One uh, being Lone Star Live, obviously based in Texas, Gulf Live based in Florida, Louisiana, et cetera, those states. And I am going to be podcast producing. I'm also going to be doing a little trending sports reporting on football, Cowboys, whatever they really need me to do over there. So yeah, that is why I am sadly leaving this show. I mean, I I'll, I know Sean wants to get into, but just from the two of us, you've been invaluable for this, and we're very happy for you that you're getting a, a full-time opportunity and a very well-deserved one, uh, even though it means that we won't get to uh, work with you anymore. Yeah, I would echo the same thoughts, Joey, that um, Lone Star Live and Gulf Live are uh, getting a terrific person with a great work ethic. Uh, we will miss you. Their gain is our loss, sadly. We hope you will... Uh, stay in touch and we can say hi from time to time. We know you're going to do great things, but from the bottom of our hearts, we both want to thank you for the contributions uh, that you've made to this podcast and you will be greatly missed. But not until after you host this mailbag episode, of course. (laughs) You don't get up that easily. I appreciate that a lot because you two have certainly been a couple of the biggest mentors in my young career and have really shaped the way I've thought of a lot of different things. So I can, uh, I can look back on when I was, you know, getting my start in this industry and you two will definitely be two of the first people that come to mind. What a scary thought uh, that is. 
uh, we're gonna next time. As as we mentioned, uh, you know, as Joey's leaving us, we're also changing the way we do things a little bit, especially as it pertains to mailbag episodes. We used to get the questions through Twitter, but Mass Live launched a new program that Sean will now tell you about. That uh, is, uh, I think, pretty innovative and pretty interesting, and that's what we're going to use today. Yeah, Chris, we're excited to get this started at Mass Live. It's called Fenway Rundown uh, Insider Texts. It's an opportunity for Red Sox fans to communicate with us, to Chris, to myself, to Christopher Smith, who is also part of our Red Sox team coverage. And you see him on here occasionally and hear him on here occasionally on the Fenway Rundown podcast. Um, this is going to be a very busy offseason. It already has begun uh, as such with the hiring of Craig Breslow as the new chief, chief baseball officer. We've got, as Chris noted, the GM meetings coming up next week. We've got winter meetings coming up in less than a month. Uh, the Red Sox, we anticipate, are going to be very active. And so we have an opportunity for you to stay in touch with us, to connect directly with us. You have the ability to text us uh, throughout the winter, throughout the season, throughout spring training. We'll give you the information that we have. We'll answer your questions directly. We'll use your questions on episodes of Fenway Rundown, just like the one we're doing right now. So you have the opportunity to get in touch with us a couple of different ways. But we think this is a great tool for big Red Sox fans to have to connect directly to us, to have your questions answered, to get some feedback from us. We're going to be taking polls. We're going to be asking what you guys want to talk about on the pod and it's a terrific deal. It's $4.95 a month. There is a 14-day uh, free sign-up period uh, where you get to sample it and see how you like it. We think you're going to like it. And uh, to get started, all you have to do is text JOIN to the number 617-751-6257. Once more, that's uh, text the word JOIN to 617-751-6257 then simply click the link and subscribe today we think this is going to be a lot of fun and i think a lot of people are going to enjoy it we're looking forward to it so we hope you'll join us it's like twitter but a billion times better and without all of the bots without the elon musk part yeah right exactly so that is uh what we're doing and and you know it's manifesting itself already as part of this mailbag episode, all the questions are exclusively from subscribers to the Fenway Rundown Insider Text, and Joey will get us started with the first one now. Yeah, this first one comes from Mark DeMellon. He asks, when the non-tender deadline coming up in a couple weeks, what's your recommendation on whether or not to tender Luis Arias, who is projected to make $4.7 in his second year of arbitration? Yeah, to me, that would be an easy pass for the Red Sox. I know that they think there's some upside there, but when you look at the possibility of some other options already on the 40-man roster, uh, whether that be uh, Pablo Reyes, whether that be David Hamilton, whether that may be even by the end of the 2024 season, Nick York, or some free agent options that are out there or trade opportunities, to me, spending almost $5 million dollars on Luis Urias does not make any sense. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a no-brainer non-tender for the Red Sox um, and one that we should see probably, uh, you know, when that happens in a couple weeks. Doesn't rule out that they'd re-sign him. You know, I think Alex Cora did like some of the things he saw from him, but not at that 4.7 number. 
Uh, I was writing about, well, I know we're going to get to a catching question in a minute ago, but I want to add something else to this conversation. As the non-tender deadline comes up, we haven't seen the Red Sox really make any massively bold moves in terms of non-tenders the last few years. You know, last year was Yu Chang and uh, Franchi Cordero, so not anything major there, and I can't remember any, you know, hugely significant ones. Um, this year, MLB Trade Rumor just put out their non-tender candidates earlier today. They had Urias, obviously. And they also had Reese McGuire at $1.7 million as a non-tender candidate, which got me thinking, and I wrote about the catchers yesterday, that could potentially be a place where they try to upgrade. I don't think they're going to be in a rush to do that. Um, but that's another interesting name that, you know, as we get closer here, could be a real non-tender possibility as well. I, I suppose so. Uh, to me, that's a reasonable number to pay for uh, a, a backup who's got three-plus years now of major league service time. Reese McGuire is not anyone's idea of a number one receiver, but as a guy who is a lefty bat, who uh, has at least some offensive upside and potential and is at least adequate defensively. Last year, his caught stealing numbers were down in a big way from the year before. Not sure what to read into those numbers, but I think at 1.7, that's a reasonable number. Now, we often have those conversations, and then we find out teams – are non-tendering guys to save two and three hundred thousand dollars it may be that they like reese mcguire but they have put a value on him of 1.5 or 1.3 and they'd like to bring him back at that number so they go to him and his agent in the next week or so and say look uh this number is high uh, we're not going to go that high but if you want to off the books agree to 1.35 we can guarantee that now um so there are a couple of ways around it I don't think it's an onerous number, but sometimes teams look for value wherever they can. And if they can save two or three or $400,000 on the 23rd guy on the roster, they may try to do it. This next one comes from Ralph A. from Wilbraham. He asks, under Bloom, the Sox seem to stress versatility, which I believe resulted in guys playing out of position. I can't help but think this contributed to the subpar defense, not only last year, but throughout Bloom's tenure. Any thoughts as to whether or not this approach will continue under Breslow? I mean, I think the Rays have always been a team that's emphasized versatility. You think back even 15 years ago with Ben Zobris doing what he did, and that was kind of a um, an unforeseen or never-before-seen thing with um, a guy like that being that good and playing a variety of spots. And he was a guy that, you know, obviously came up the Rays way. And now you know, they platoon, they have different versatile guys. That's kind of have to, how they have to build their roster. Um, you know, I, I think Kike Hernandez, uh, what made him valuable was his versatility and making him the shortstop out of necessity with Trevor Story out last year took away the versatility. And not only was he bad, as we've talked about on the show a billion times, defensively, offensively, but when you have him at one spot every day, you take away that versatile aspect. Um, you know, I think those players who can play anywhere are valuable. You only get 26 roster spots if you can have a guy that, you know, feels like he can play a variety of different roles. Um, that is always going to be valuable. I, I do think there were times the Red Sox were a little out of place. They were always behind the eight ball in terms of their infield this year because of what happened with Story. I think the teams are always going to value versatility no matter who's running the show. Um that being said, if you have a superstar who you can plug in a position every single day and put him out there and get production, you're going to do that too. 
Yeah, and I would point out, Chris, that while you cited the bottom of the payroll in the Tampa Bay Rays as a team that has always valued versatility, let's go all the way to the top and look at the Los Angeles Dodgers, who had Kike Hernandez, lost him the free agency, and then traded back for him, in part because they valued that versatility. They continue to have Chris Taylor, a guy who can play the infield and outfield. At one point, they had Cody Bellinger, who could play center field and first base. That's an unusual combo. Max Muncie can play second and third. And who did they have in the middle of their infield for about half their games this year, but a gold glove outfielder by the name of Mookie Betts. So it isn't just... Uh, small market teams that value versatility. I think everybody is looking to do it, particularly when you have teams taking 13 pitchers out of 26 roster spots. That gives you four extra position players. The more versatility to have you have, the better off you are, whether you're paying $250 million in payroll or $60 million in payroll. And that kind of speaks to what I wrote about today with the Justin Turner situation the Red Sox face. You know, the Red Sox, for five years, really for 20 years, were locked into that DH that could not play anywhere else, first with Ortiz and then with uh, J.D. Martinez. Now Justin Turner last year played, of course, a little bit at, at first base and second base. Um, but a more functional roster is one where you don't have that locked-in DH on a daily basis. You can rotate guys around. You can mix and match, um, whether it's Yoshida DHing or if Duvall comes back, him DHing or get Devers off his feet or Casas. And with that, that's why I think if the Turner price tag becomes too much, they might be comfortable moving on. Yeah, and one more thing to add, the, the, the uh, person sending the question was saying that, well, do you think the defense was off because they had a bunch of versatile players? The three worst defensive positions on that roster last year were first base, third base, and left field, where they have three everyday players, essentially, mm -hmm. in Casas, Devers, um, and it, it, you know, in, in left field with Yoshida. So, uh, it, you know, it, it isn't about moving guys around and not getting adequate defense. Sometimes you're committing to guys at positions who aren't very good defensively to begin with. This next one is from Neil Flanagan. He asks the Red Sox need starting pitching. Are there any free agents available or possible trade candidates that you see the Red Sox pursuing? Well, certainly starting pitching is going to be the number one need this year, whether they do it through free agency or via a trade. It wouldn't surprise me if they did one of each. Uh, if you're going to go at the high end of the free agent pitching market uh, and you get two guys off that market, you're probably looking about a, a, at a commitment of greater than $300 million between any two of those deals. And there are some very good guys out there uh, from Aaron Nola, to uh, Blake Snell, uh, to Jordan Montgomery, um, to Yamamoto from Japan. So there are a number of free agent options. I would expect they're going to be in on several of those. But again, uh, I, I don't look for them. I think they're going to spend, and I think they're going to surprise people, and I think they're going to get back to you know, being among the top half dozen teams in payroll. But um, I don't know that I see them filling both their, their rotation needs through big ticket free agents. I could see doing one big signing and then trading for another. Neil Flanagan, a uh, great family friend of the Catillo's, my dad's longtime business partner. We appreciate the text. Uh, 
and I appreciate more that you did it through this platform and just texting me directly and uh, asking if you uh, if I'm st- ready to do a story on a big Red Sox fan, which when it comes to you will never be the case. Um, when it comes to the starters, I agree with Sean. I think they're going to go big. You know, Sean wrote about, and I think pretty interestingly and, and smartly, going to get an innings eater, Aaron Nola, you know, being a guy who fits that mold. Um, you know, Blake Snell comes with question marks. I think a big part of why we thought Blake Snell could fit was the Heim Bloom factor, the familiarity and all of that. That no longer uh, plays any role. Jordan Montgomery, I think, is interesting. The guy who's, you know, pitched for the Yankees before. Uh, big market, has experience now in, in three different places and has been great. And probably made himself a lot of money here in the last couple months. Um, trade candidates, you know, Dylan Cease, Mitch Keller. Some of these guys we talked about at the trade deadline. Maybe a Shane Bieber. Bieber. Um, Corbin Burns, right? Uh, these are the types of people that are going to be out there. And um, I, I just, I don't think they're at the point yet where they're, they want that one year rental. So I don't think any of those guys are probably going to be in the mix. Uh, I would guess, you know, it's going to be guys with two, three years of control. But yeah, that's you know, what the soft season is going to be all about. You know, I think as I'm doing these roster analysis pieces throughout the week, you know, catcher, like, oh, maybe they could add a backup. Infield, eh, second baseman, maybe figure out the DH thing. Outfield, maybe already too crowded. Maybe they trade Verdugo. Bullpen's pretty much set, minus adding a lefty. Starting rotation's the big question mark, and I'm sure we'll talk about that pretty much, you know, nonstop for the next few months. This next one is from Pat in Londonderry. He wants to know about the catcher situation. Uh, hearing, He said, I'd love to hear the team strategy on catcher long-term. We've talked so much about Meyer in the middle infield, but does Teal change the dynamics of the near future? Any future spring training where it's Teal and Wong duking it out for the number one, or would they move Wong before that? I wrote about this two days ago the, to start that series, and you know it makes me think that there's no way they go out and get you know a big-time catcher. Last year, before Kyle Teal was part of the organization, they made a real competitive offer for Sean Murphy before he was traded from Oakland to Atlanta. They wanted him, you know, and they ultimately decided nobody else on the open market, whether that be Christian Vasquez or Wilson Contreras, anybody like that was worth uh, going after. So they went with Wong and McGuire. And I think they thought that was going to be more of a platoon that it ended up being where Wong ended up taking the lion's share of work. You know, I think Wong's game, there's, you know, strong arm has hit a lot of doubles as Sean likes to point out, has some pop, to me, the offense was very disappointing this year. Um, I could see him being, you know, a placeholder or a number two for the next year, year and a half before Kyle Teal really takes over. Um, and I do think that one thing with Connor Wong that they're going to look at, we just talked about versatility, is seeing if he can get back to being able to play a couple of those other positions. He's played second base, I believe, and third base in the past uh, throughout his minor league career and in college at Houston. I wouldn't be surprised if they try to increase his versatility just to make him a little bit more valuable with Teal coming up. But, you know, the ceiling for somebody like Kyle Teal is is miles above what it is for Connor Wong. He already got to double A, you know, and I think 15 games into his pro career. It could be a very quick rise. You know, Wong, to me, seems like the starter on opening day and probably for most of the season. But if Teal takes over, you know, midway through, I wouldn't be shocked. I'd be surprised if we saw Teal in 24, or at least in any significant role in 24, that, you know, he could be a call up in September, depending on where they are then. But I don't think there's any question that that organization now envisions Kyle Teal as their catcher of the future, uh, no later than midway through 2025. I mean, he is a potential franchise guy. Um, you know, we, we, we only have to look 
uh, to Baltimore to see a college catcher who has emerged as, uh, you know, one of the most important members of the Orioles, um, a, a guy that, uh, you know, is one of the three or four best at his position. I think they view Teal uh, in much the same way. Um, so I, I, I would expect that uh, whatever they do at the catching spot is going to be short term. If they end up moving on, as we talked earlier um, uh, from uh, from McGuire as a backup, then, um, you know, they'll they'll find another veteran guy to be the backup to Wong in 24 with the expectation that Teal is the guy running the show in 2025. This next one is from Thomas McCready. He asks, is there any info on the timing of when Yamamoto might get posted, like before or after free agency likely starts, and how the timing might affect other signings, as I'm sure things go fast once free agency starts? Yeah, I mean, that's totally dependent on the Japanese team. Um, so, it, you know, they get the, the ball rolling by posting the player. Uh, and then I think there's, what, 20 days or so um, for teams to make their bids. We saw this last year with Yoshida that on the very first day that he was posted by his team in Japan, the Red Sox blew everybody out of the water with the five-year $90 million deal. And agent Scott Boris said, we're probably not going to top this. We're ready to take this. So uh, we, we don't know when it's going to start. And we also don't know when it's going to end because it depends on the volume of bidding. I, I think it's safe to say that the interest level and the bids for Yamamoto are going to be considerably higher than Yoshida. Uh, I, I saw that um, uh, in the athletic today, um, there was a projection that he could get um, maybe more than $200 million over seven years with a 30 million AAV. Uh, I guess that's possible. We're talking about a 25 year old guy who has been the equivalent of the Cy Young award winner three years in a row in, in Japan. Um, it, there's nothing not to like about him. I know there's some concern about his size, um, but that that whole process of Japanese players being posted is a little hard to anticipate because it initially is controlled by the former team. Yeah, and you know, the thing I'd say is I'd be shocked if it was the first day done deal thing that Yoshida was last year. That feel, felt like, you know, an aberration of, you know, the Red Sox trying to go out and, and get their guy. I think in this case probably some visits with some teams and really, you know, shopping because they'll probably have competitive offers in that $200 million threshold. So I don't think a team's going to blow them away on day one. I could be wrong. These things play out in weird ways. But uh, like Sean said, not uh, anything you can really anticipate until it happens. The last question comes from Thomas Howland. He asked, what's your best guess for the type of return the Red Sox could expect in an Alex Verdugo trade? I'll start here. I mean, I think it's tough to tell um, just because that they were, um, you know, trying at the deadline, as we reported, as we've heard multiple times, there's a bunch of teams involved, the Yankees being one of them. And, and I've heard, as I think Chris Henrik and some others have reported, there was a deal discussed about Clark Schmidt, the Yankees starter, which, you know, hindsight, I would have taken that, you know, you get a controllable starting pitcher who's, you know, not a world beater, not an ace, but had a good stretch for them. And that's what the Red Sox needed with a glut of outfielders and not enough pitching. Um, you're getting one year of a guy that you're going to be hesitant to re-sign for various reasons and whose effort comes and goes and whose performance comes and goes, you know, and I think there's some teams that might be higher on him than others because the tools are there. 
um, because the upside is there and maybe you really can tap into that upside in a contract year and that's what gets him motivated and you get him very consistent. Nothing has seemed to work so far. Um, even the manager, you know, trying to kick him in the ass publicly at the end of last season, it worked for a little bit, not the whole time. So I think that, you know, it's going to take a team who really looks at that upside and wants to outbid everybody else. I think generally the price might be pretty low. This is one year of a guy that you can't count on and not to harp on this and not to beat, beat up the guy, but we've gone through the reasons on this show a billion times before. Um, and I think the Red Sox, you know, might not get as much value as, you know, you'd normally get for a player with that track record and um, at that age. Yeah, I, I think very modest return for Verdugo this winter if they try to move him. And I think they probably are open to it, but they're probably going to be disappointed by what they get offered. And I would remind you that while uh, nobody is suggesting that Alex Verdugo is in the same class as Mookie Betts, remember that Verdugo came here as the best piece for Mookie Betts with a year of control left. That's, so that's Jeter, down, Jeter down slander right there. Well, I'm I'm sorry to be offensive to him, but uh, the the fact is that Verdugo uh, was the main part of that deal and a reminder that no matter how good the player is, and Verdugo is decidedly average in a lot of aspects of his game. He, I think he stepped it up defensively. That was borne out by the fact that he is a gold glove finalist in right field. And I think he deserves that. But offensively, this is a guy who had a 102 OPS plus last year. That means he's 2% better than the average player. He's never hit more than 15 home runs in a season. Um, he, he, the production is modest. And so people have to keep expectations in check. Clark Schmidt, they'd probably be jumping up and down if they got that offer again this winter. Uh, I think that's what you're looking at. A back-end starter, a serviceable reliever, or a position player who has his own issues attached to him, just as Verdugo does. And I'll note a factor in this is if the relationship with Alex Verdugo and Alex Cora has soured to the point where it's untenable, that might be an addition by subtraction thing. I don't know if we're at that point yet. I think there are hints that it has based on the repeated benchings and how the two seem to uh, disagree throughout the year. Um, if Alex Cora wants Alex Verdugo gone and, and kind of communicates that to Craig Breslow, that could be something where, hey, it doesn't matter what you get back. We want this guy in a different uniform. Not saying we know that's the case, but it wouldn't be the first time it's happened. Joey, great hosting duties today. And again, best of luck at your new job, as Sean said. As I said, they're very lucky to have you. And Sean, take us home with one more reminder about the uh, insider text, if you will. Yep, uh, it's Fenway Rundown Insider Text with the opportunity for Red Sox fans who really want to stay connected all year round, not just in the offseason, which is going to be very busy with the GM meetings, the winter meetings, then spring training, then the regular season. All year round, you'll have access to myself, to Chris Cotillo, to Christopher Smith. You'll be able to text all of us your questions, get direct, honest, and we hope rapid feedback. Um, that's, we want to kind of take the wall down and give you the opportunity to ask the questions that are on your mind. Uh, we can't say we're going to be responding at 3 a.m., but we're going to try to get back to you as quickly as we can. That's my prime time to work. Yeah, I know. That's your little window. So if you're, 
if you're up in the middle of the night and curiosity gets the best of you, you're likely to hear from Cotillo and nobody else. You can take that as a, uh, as a good thing or a bad thing, um, but we're excited about this. And it's easy to try out for 14 days. Uh, you won't be charged for the first two weeks. All you have to do to get started is to text the word JOIN, that's J-O-I-N, to 617-751-6257. Then all you have to do is click the link and subscribe. We think it's going to be a lot of fun. We think you're going to enjoy it. We know we are. Hope you join us. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.